Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight I want to talk about transforming suffering into happiness. Sound pretty good? Is this is this loud or is it how is it is it a bit loud? It's okay. Okay. Um, a magical alchemical formula, and this is one way you can think of what we're doing here these days. <clears throat> this morning, uh, Kate gave the instructions on Vedna that feeling tone of experience, the flavor of experience, where um, each moment, it said, has some flavor, either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral. It pretty much covers the territory, would you agree? This is the second foundation of mindfulness in the discourse on mindfulness that it, which all of um, mindfulness practice, Vipassana practice is based, um, the Buddha says there is a most direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, and pain and anxiety and realize the highest happiness and that is the establishment of mindfulness. And he goes on to talk about four different areas, what are often called the four foundations of mindfulness, the four arenas or spheres that mindfulness can be practiced that he suggests. The first foundation is mindfulness of the body. Breath, sensations, sounds, all physical experience, Um, in different postures, walking, lying down, sitting, standing. And he says, this is a field to understand and to be present for our experience. The second foundation after, um, after the body is this Vedana, is found, is the mindfulness of the feeling tone of experience, the pleasant, unpleasant neutrality. Um, So you can see how important it is. He put it second. The third foundation is mindfulness of the mind, which includes all thoughts and feelings, mind states, emotions, um, that we can just be aware of. Oh, this is sadness, this is joy, this is a concentrated mind, this is a restless mind, etc. And the fourth foundation is a, a, a complex list of lists, different ways that the mind gets caught and ways that it can be freed. The lists are the five hindrances, just seeing how they operate and how we can get confused. The seven factors of enlightenment. If you like lists, you came to the right body of teachings. 
Um, the uh, five aggregates, I mentioned those uh, last night, the, those five uh, skandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. Um, the uh, six sense spheres, I won't go into all this now, just so you know the lay of the land, and the four noble truths. And he said, to understand how we can be free as well. But I want to focus particularly on that second foundation because therein, he says, lies the key to choosing whether we are creating suffering or happiness in our lives. In the moment of pleasantness, the typical response when we're not so mindful or conscious, what do we do when there's a pleasant moment? Go for it. I want it. I want to keep it. Bring it on. Have some more. When it's an unpleasant moment and we're not mindful or aware, what do we naturally do, most of us? push it away. I don't want this. I don't like it. And it can run the gamut from uh, aversion to, um, to hatred and ill will and aggression, just that movement of separation. <clears throat> and when there's not a whole lot going on, when we're uh, not captivated by experience one way or another, when it's neutral, usually we space out on it. And we aren't really clear. We are what's called deluded. And there's a number of different levels of delusion. Those three responses, greed or attachment, hatred or aversion, just different um, levels on the continuum, and Delusion or confusion are said to be the three roots of suffering. Greed, hatred, delusion, or also uh, sometimes uh, spoken of as attachment, aversion, and ignorance. Those are the sometimes called the three poisons because when we act out of that response, those responses, we are contracting our mind and getting confused and we are um, causing suffering. We are planting the seeds for suffering. If we're mindful, when it's a pleasant moment, instead of grasping, there's the capacity to see, oh, and this is a pleasant moment and it's fine to enjoy it. In fact, my whole uh, Awakening Joy course is about don't miss the wholesome states. But we can enjoy it without grasping or getting attached. We can appreciate it without getting caught in attachment. And that is another way of saying non-greed, non-grasping. When it's an unpleasant moment, instead of aversion or hatred, we can have the response, if we're mindful, 
of the Vedana, oh, this is an unpleasant moment, we respond with non-hatred or non-aversion, which is a friendliness toward the moment. We're saying, okay, here is an unpleasant sensation and I don't have to hate or get caught in fear or get caught in some kind of struggle. Oh, I can be with this too. I can have a friendliness towards this. Non-hatred or non-aversion, another way of saying friendliness or kindness or love. If we are mindful of the neutral, instead of spacing out or getting confused, we see clearly non-delusion or clarity, wisdom, those three responses, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, or another way of saying them more positively, um, the capacity to let go, or generosity, the capacity to be friendly, or loving kindness, and the capacity to see clearly, or wisdom, those are said to be the roots of well-being and happiness. Instead of having a contracted response, we are open to experience and both meeting the difficulty without contraction, with courage, with compassion, with kindness. <clears throat> we can meet the the pleasant without grasping, we can open to it and allow it to come and go, and we can develop wisdom and clarity, the three roots of happiness. So it's right there in every moment how you respond to the flavor of experience, whether you are planting the seeds for suffering or for happiness. Um, just as a, an example to show you how in every moment you're planting these seeds, this is something I, I like to do to, to really uh, drive the point home. Just think of some um, unskillful action you've done somewhere in your distant past or in your life. You know, you click the send button on the, the email or maybe responded in a way that uh, was, was a little bit uh, sharp. And just, uh, just reflect and remember, I won't leave you here too long, don't worry, but just, just remember maybe a moment that you regret. And this is how we plant these seeds. Notice how it felt, as you remember, in the moment or right after you did the action. How did it feel when you knew mm, that might not have been so skillful? Probably didn't feel so good. What was the energy that came back to you from whoever was on the receiving end? Did you get the response, oh, thank you for the feedback? Or, uh, uh, oh, how wonderful to raise my consciousness in that way. Uh, 
probably came back in kind, a kind of defensiveness or resistance or whatever. And that's probably not so pleasant. As you recall right now that action, how does it feel as you remember? Ooh, that wasn't so good. Probably didn't feel so good right now. And the likelihood of that habit being repeated is stronger because you practiced it a little bit more. So that's the, the sobering news. Okay, I won't leave you here. Take a nice breath inside. And here's the good news. Think of a, a really skillful act that you did. Maybe a, just a random act of kindness. You're there for a friend or just move to, um, uh, to express your kind heart. If you can remember some situation, just thinking back, how did it feel in the moment that you acted skillfully? Probably pretty good. What was the energy that came back to you on the receiving end? Not always, but probably some appreciation, connection. As you remember it right now, how does it feel? Oh yeah, sometimes I do some nice things. And the likelihood of you doing it that way is also increased because you've practiced that habit. So that's four ways that a skillful act is planting seeds of happiness, of wholesomeness. And just like four ways that an unskillful act, you're planting seeds of suffering. This is not just theoretical, this is how it works. Okay, so tonight, as I said, I want to talk about how we are transforming suffering into happiness by doing this practice. I want to uh, hope to give you a context so you see what, besides the fact that you noticed here's an in-breath and here's an out-breath, what the point of this is. You are planting very powerful seeds of well-being in every moment that you're mindful. Because mindfulness is noticing the pleasant without grasping, noticing the unpleasant without pushing away, and noticing the neutral without being confused, clear wisdom. So I wanna go through each of these in the time that I have. First, greed or the grasping mind, attachment, and non-greed, or letting go and generosity. The Buddha spoke of the power, the, the, the joy, I call it in, in my course, the, the joy of letting go. And he said, this is a tremendous source of happiness. We don't realize 
how much baggage we're holding on thinking, oh, I need this, I want that, or oh, uh, what if I miss this? And there's no end to wanting of desires to be fulfilled. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the grip of wanting that we can't even experience the pleasant while it's here. As an example, one that I have used for many years, my, my son, Adam, who is now 31, this was when he was two, <laughs> a while ago, but I remember it like yesterday. He was about two and a half, actually. We were down at um, this uh, retreat center in Southern California, Yucca Valley, uh, where I taught for many, many uh, spring seasons. And uh, we, it was snack time, and just the two of us were in the staff room, and we were um, uh, having some strawberries, his favorite food. And it was this big bowl of luscious, organic, rich, juicy strawberries. Got it in your mind? <laughs> tasting good <laughs> and there he was just I was happy too and and he was like really happy and he was just grabbing them you know hand over fist you know juice running down his mouth and I in my naive early stages of fatherhood uh, wanted to teach him to eat mindfully I mean, everybody else in the retreat was eating mindfully. Why, why not teach him, you know? So there he was, and uh, just really, you know, chomping down and grabbing more. And I said, Adam, Adam, just taste the one in your mouth. It tastes so good. Yeah. He didn't want to hear any about that. And in this one moment that's indelible in my mind, where I had the bowl out of his reach... There he is with a huge strawberry in his mouth and reaching, going, strawberry! <laughs> and there it was, the human condition in a freeze frame. He couldn't taste the one in his mouth because he was so frustrated at not having the bowl. Sound familiar? That's what we do when we're in the middle of a really wonderful experience and we say, oh, I, I hope this doesn't end. Or how could I keep it going? Or, uh, uh, gee, it's starting to wane. And we miss out on the experience because we're so uh, hankering for the next one. This is the, the power of grasping and greed to keep us from being present. So to let go and to actually experience what's in here, why not taste the strawberry? But it takes some practice to let go. There's a, perhaps you're, you're familiar with this, a, a trap that's used in Asia, a monkey trap that they use to um, catch monkeys who 
create a nuisance in the field. And the way they devise this trap, they take a coconut, cut off one end, hollow it out, tie it to a stake, and put some sweets in the coconut. The monkey comes along, smells the sweets, slips his hand in to get the sweets. And the way the trap is devised, the hole is big enough for the monkey to slip its hand in, but when it grabs a fistful of sweets, it's too small to get that fist out. Starts to get very upset, knows it's in trouble, can even hear people coming. All that monkey has to do is let go of the sweets, slip its hand out, and it's free. It's a very rare monkey that figures that out. (laughs) And that pretty much is the predicament that we get caught in, thinking, if I only have that, or if I only have my life together and control it all, I'll be happy, not realizing that holding on to what's changing and what is out of our control is the very thing that creates suffering. As Ajahn Chah, this, uh, this wonderful uh, meditation master says, um, let go a little and you'll have a little freedom. Let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. Let go completely, you'll have complete freedom and your troubles with the world will come to an end. This is what we're asked to do, to let go. And that means letting go of our ideas, our thoughts of, of how things should be, and as well as the stuff around us. This is a, a Calvin and Hobbes, uh, Calvin and Hobbes for those who uh, maybe are from outside the US, is a, a very popular cartoon um, strip. And Calvin says in this first frame, Here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. (laughs) Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy and discontent. My day is ruined. Last frame, I I should have quit thinking while I was ahead. That's what happens all of a sudden when we say, oh, this would be even better and we can't appreciate what's here now. Hmm. This is uh, a great Tibetan master, Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do Whatever arises in the mind has no reality whatsoever. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Letting go. One expression of that letting go is... uh, Generosity. We, you heard a little bit about uh, Donna earlier today, uh, and I just want to talk a little bit about the joy of generosity. 
It's the currency that we communicate our caring and our love. It feels good to share, doesn't it? Especially with those closest to us. You ever have a, a really great ice cream cone, right? And you're with somebody who's saying, no, 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 I shouldn't be eating. And you say, oh, you gotta try some, you know? <laughs> Not too big a bite, but, but you gotta try it. You really have to try it. Because it, f- it feels good to share. And when we don't have people to share with, sometimes it gets really lonely and disconnected. But we have so much to share. <coughs> on, on one retreat, there's a retreat uh, memory coming. Uh, I was on, uh, this is one of, my, the f- one of those long uh, fall retreats in Massachusetts, and I was... Um, I was, wash, I was assigned pot washing. They didn't ask for volunteers in those days. And I was assigned, well, actually, they assign you now, too. Uh, but I was assigned pot washing, and I felt very mm, <laughs> victimized by it. Because there I was one day scrubbing all of these pots and saying, I want to get to the next sitting. I'm going to be late for the next sitting. It's all these pots and just kind of feeling sorry for myself. And out of the staff dining room um, came one of the managers at the center in Massachusetts. And he looked at me doing my work, which he thought I was doing with great service. Uh, he didn't know what was going on in my mind. And he had something in his, uh, in his hand wrapped in aluminum foil. He looked at me, looked at what he had, and, he's, and he whispers, here, this is for you, for your good work. You know? I finished the pots really quickly and finally <laughs> wiped my hands. And then I opened it up and there was this big piece of glazed cheese cake. At that time in the retreat, an extra slice of bread was a big deal at tea. And it was big, anyway. So, and, and after a while, you just kind of get, you do get more generous and spacious. So, because it was so big, and I was feeling fortunate, I broke it into um, four different pieces and put three pieces in the bowls of some uh, of my yogis, yogi friends, who I, I knew where their bowls were. In those days, you kept your own bowl and you had a place for it. So there's not much else to do on a three-month retreat. You know whose bowl is where, you know. <laughs> and I put it there. And I just kind of waited for uh, a tea time for them to come, come back. Each one, when they came in to tea, their jaw dropped, and one person broke their their piece in into and put it in put half of it in somebody else's bowl. My good buddy Howie Cohn, who just taught this last retreat with, was one of those three people. I chewed my cake very mindfully. I can guarantee you, I was really there for it. It lasted about. 90 seconds or so. (laughs) But what has stayed with me, and this is uh, going on 50 years, no, 40 years, 
um, later is I feel connected to five other people. Jim, the manager, the three people that I shared with and the one who got the, the last piece. Isn't that amazing? Long after that taste is gone, I still feel a connection with everyone. That's how generosity works. It's the, the currency of our caring and our connection. You might think of, of maybe some, some gift that somebody gave you in your, in your house, a sweater or some kind of gift over um, you know, your birthday or something like that. And probably every time you see that, you feel a connection with that person. It's so beautiful. So it feels good to share. And it feels good not only to share, but as was mentioned um, earlier, I think Dawn mentioned it uh, earlier today, it's important to know how to receive as well. Just a little karmic, karma 101 uh, about generosity. That the power of a gift exchange depends on the purity in the heart or the mind of the one giving, the purity of the gift, and the purity in the one receiving. So if you give a gift to somebody and they say, oh, you shouldn't have done it. Oh, why'd you do that? <laughs> you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have. Right? <laughs> no, maybe you don't think that, but it's just not as... Not as joyful, but if somebody says, oh, thank you so much, it's like it completes the circuit. So for those who have an easier time giving than receiving, just know that you are what's called a field of merit for somebody else's generosity. It is a generous act to receive gracefully. Now the the full expression of generosity, of letting go and generosity, is service. The joy of service, of really being there for others. This is a tremendous source of happiness. And this world has a lot of suffering and to find some way that you can express your caring and share from that place of caring, this is a great joy. And it's not like you have to go around saving the world, but to just, as uh, Martin Seligman, the father of, of positive psychology, says he's found that, he wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, that the real happiness comes from finding your gifts and sharing them in a spirit of contribution. That's the real happiness. So find what really moves you and express your caring. It's a source of tremendous happiness. Maybe I'll read this from uh, Nyosho Kempo, great um, uh, Tibetan master. 
We're not practicing for ourselves alone since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with this good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So, non-greed, or not only letting go, but generosity of heart. And just know that every moment that you're mindful of a pleasant experience, and you're not holding on, you are deepening that habit practicing that habit of not only letting go, but allowing and being fine, having a generous heart that's not holding on. Okay, next, non-hatred. In the moment that you are mindful of the unpleasant, how do you react? It's understandable to react with frustration or fear or judgment or ill will. I don't like this. And here we are training ourselves to have a different response. Not that you have to be a samurai warrior and, and uh, you know, this is not a no pain, no gain experience, but to see I have the capacity to be with the hard stuff is tremendously empowering. Non-hatred, the, the Buddha has a wonderful teaching in the Dhammapada, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred ceases by love alone. This is an ancient and eternal law. Even with people or situations that are difficult, the Buddha says, if possible, it doesn't mean you have to like it, but to respond with hatred, you're the one that's getting poisoned. This one image, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person gets sick. Or picking up a hot coal, wanting to hurt them and throwing it at them, not realizing that you're the one that's getting burned. So, how to respond in a different way? Well, we're practicing it here, as I said, and we're practicing it on many different levels, starting with, as we've been talking about, kindness towards ourselves. Remember, non-hatred or non-aversion, the, the positive way of expressing it is friendliness or kindness or loving kindness. And we start by seeing how can I be friendly and kind towards this mind-body process. Instead of being angry at my body when it doesn't cooperate, it doesn't need your anger. It doesn't need your scolding. All that does is create 
a tightening and a contraction. And if you know anything about healing, anger and hatred and judgment do not lead to healing. Loving does. How do you feel towards your shoulder that hurts? Are you angry with it? Or can you appreciate that it's doing the best it can to serve you? How do you feel towards your mind when it gets caught for the 17th time in saying, oh, you're not good enough? Do you get angry with it? How would you feel towards a little child who is throwing a tantrum and saying, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, this isn't fair. Would you scold her or him and say, just relax, get it together? No. They need to be held and reassured and say, it's okay. So we're practicing it here. And part of that practicing is you get to see all the places that are difficult to accept, that we usually numb ourselves to. That's one of the ways that this works. You're not distracting yourself, so you see the whole show, which is challenging. It's not often a very good show at first. I hope you're starting to see that uh, if you hang in there, there's a really, uh, some beautiful qualities underneath. There's a line I, I love by Robert Bly, uh, the great poet and uh, poet uh, commentator, who says, every part of our personality that we do not learn to embrace will become hostile to us. We can get angry at our anger or frustrated by our frustration. Just adding on what in Buddhism is called a second arrow on top of the first. The first one, it's painful enough. Oh, that anger hurts or that frustration hurts. But on top of it, I am so pathetic for having this anger or frustration. That's adding a second and a quiver of arrows on top of it. And so the process is one of being willing to see the whole show and not take it so personally. <clears throat> this is uh, from Ramdas. I think I've mentioned him, my, one of my main mentors. He talks about this process. He says, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple. But of course, the light gets brighter too. So that's what we're doing. Each time we're willing to see the whole show, can I hold it with kindness? Can I hold it with friendliness? <clears throat> can I see my whining mind and love that too? I, on one retreat, I... I was with this um, person on the retreat and she comes in and she says, you know, I, I can't stand my mind. I see it whining all the time. I'm sitting and the bell rings and my mind says, oh, now we have to do walking meditation, you know. <laughs> rings 
after walking, oh, now I have to go and do sitting, you know. Even it rings for lunch, now we have to go eat lunch, you know. And she said, of of course I'm miserable, I'm whining to myself all the time. And she said, you know, can you help at all? And something kind of came through and I said, what if you change that have to to get to? What if when the bell rings, you say, oh, now we get to do walking meditation. Oh, now we get to go back to sitting. Now we get to eat lunch. I didn't know what effect it would have, but it was really amazing. A few days, I saw her a couple of days later, and she said, I can't believe it. Just switching that little perspective has changed everything. And fortunately, uh, it somehow stuck. She lived in, uh, at the time, uh, in, in the East Bay where I lived, and I ran into her a few months later, and she said, I'm still doing it. I'm not whining anymore. Just a a little shift. Oh, now I get to do this. And life becomes an adventure instead of an obstacle course. So that's the first, loving ourselves or learning to be kind to ourselves, to the whole show inside. And we did that loving uh, meta for self the the other day. Um, Then there's another layer, and that's loving the connection that we can have between ourselves and others. It's a tremendous source of joy to feel connected. And I want to read to you um, a passage that shows we can feel connected to anything. This is from a book I love called The Compassionate Life by Mark Ian Barish. Um, it's a beautiful book on compassion. Uh, there'll be a book list, by the way, put out uh, uh, tonight, probably. Uh, it'll be out on the table. And uh, he talks about going to this, um, this research uh, center called HeartMath down in, uh, around the Santa Cruz area. And he, uh, he's in this, uh, this experimental lab, and the, the, one of the researchers uh, puts sits him near yogurt in a Petri dish that has some electrodes in it. And he said, sit down there. And he looked and it was attached to to a a meter where there was a needle. And the needle was just sitting there. And then he asks Mark to think of a deeply disturbing emotional experience. And this is Mark talking. Rummaging through memory, I had a sudden flash of my sister's death, and I was flooded with a surge of grief. At that very moment, all by itself, the needle on the meter buried itself in the red zone, then oscillated back wildly back and forth. We hadn't touched anything. The box was hooked up to nothing except yogurt, strawberry, my favorite. Nothing in the room had changed but my feelings. And when I switched my mental focus back to my surroundings, the needle went still. Okay, the researcher said, now think of an incident of physical pain. I called to mind a recent medical checkup that had involved taking several blood samples. The needle kicked fitfully, like a man whose sleep had been disturbed. Then he had me remember a moment of profound embarrassment. I'm not telling. And again, the needle twitched abruptly as if in response. 
What was being revealed here, he claimed, was that all living creatures from microorganisms to pets to people resonate to the field of the human heart. And one could say resonate to the field of all of life around them. We feel the energy of others and we can either see them as the enemy or we can, as we've been practicing, feel and send some goodwill to them. Responding with hatred leads to suffering. Responding with at least goodwill or compassion, if not love, we're the beneficiaries. As uh, Desmond Tutu says, uh, forgiveness is the highest form of self-interest. I need to forgive so that my own anger and lust for revenge does not corrode my own being. Now you might not be ready to forgive and so you can't bypass that. You need to go through whatever hurt and grief and trauma that is, uh, is necessary. But just to know that when we hold on to that bitterness, we're the ones that suffer. And even if you could wish you could forgive, that's enough. Just get in touch with that aspiration. Non-hatred or loving kindness, feeling a connection. Mm -hmm. This is uh, Lewis Thomas, uh, a a wonderful um, biologist who wrote, I maintain despite the moment's evidence against the claim that we are born and grow up with a fondness for each other and we have genes for that. We can be talked out of it for the genetic message is like distant music and some of us are hard of hearing. Societies are noisy affairs drowning out the sounds of ourselves and our connection. Hard of hearing, we go to war. Stone deaf, we make missiles. Nonetheless, the music is there waiting for more listeners. So there's the connection with others, a source of great happiness and love. And then there is the connection, our love of the truth, of practice itself. This can sometimes seem like a very sterile experience, just sitting here watching my breath. What's the point? But actually, there's something deep inside of you that is drawn to do this. And sometimes it's not so obvious in Buddhist practice. And I want to share with you a story and just have you reflect in your own life about how much you care about this stuff. Many years ago, I was, um, I'd been practicing uh, meditation for a couple of years, and uh, Ram Das, who I mentioned, he wrote this book, Be Here Now, who's a, a Bible of mine for a number of years, uh, and then he, I was fortunate that he became a teacher. Uh, oh yeah, I mentioned him before here. And uh, there was, it was this Hindu scene a devotional scene, you know, the chanting Sri Ram, Jay Ram, and doing mala beads and stuff like that. And we had a, a conversation to see if it was appropriate for me to 
uh, to be part of the scene, even though I was a Buddhist meditator. And uh, he said um, in this uh, first conversation, he said, well, uh, let me ask you, um, you know, this is a devotional scene. Um, How do you feel about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I said, I like Jesus. I don't know if I love him the way that you, I have a sense you feel I should. He said, oh, okay. Well, what about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? I like Krishna. Just the expression of celebration and, and, uh, and loving life. He said, okay. He said, well, what about God? Do you love God? And I said, you know, Ramdas, um, I was raised Jewish, and in my mind, maybe it was a a Bible a child's Bible book when I was growing up that I had this image of God as this big, powerful man, man with a beard and a book and a pen, saying, "You're going to have a good day, and you're going to have a lousy day," and instead of Loving God, it put the fear of God into me. So when I think of God, when I hear the word God, I think in terms of the Dharma, of the, just the perfection and the mystery of it all. So I translate it that way. And he said, oh, okay, well, let me ask you, do you love the Dharma? And I, I didn't hesitate at all. I said, oh, yeah. He said, you're sure? I said, oh, Absolutely. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, say, I love you, Dharma. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I'll say it with you. You say it and I'll say it. We'll just say it together. And I felt completely stupid saying, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. He said, keep on saying it. I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said it. And after about three or four times, I just really felt it. I love you, Dharma. At which point, tears started rolling down my cheeks. And he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. And he ended up doing the class. And it was a really powerful moment for me that I love the Dharma. I love the truth. I love goodness. And I would bet that everybody here in their own way can say the same thing. It's important to get in touch, not just this cerebral exercise. There's something deep within you that's called you here that you can't ignore. Don't miss the fact that you love the truth, that you love goodness and waking up. It's the juice that keeps you doing this practice, especially in the more challenging times. 
Okay, so that's another level of love, of non-hatred. But even that is limited because it's me loving the Dharma and there's a deeper level of love where there's no subject and object, where it collapses and it's just life loving itself, where there's no separation, non-duality as it's said. And this leads us to the third area. But before we go there, I just wanna remind you, every moment that you are mindful of the unpleasant, you are cultivating a friendly heart with life. You are cultivating kindness and friendliness and loving heart. Every single moment that you're mindful in that way. And now the third, non-delusion. Non-delusion has a number of levels. One is, as I said, to not be confused or spaced out about what is happening. To really see clearly, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, sadness is like this. Oh, fear is like this. Oh, um, the breath in and out is like this. So it's seeing clearly, even when it's neutral, and maybe you found over the course of these days, even the breath, when the mindfulness starts getting strong, all of a sudden, at times, the breath can be a really neat place to be. Has, have you noticed that? Or, the, or just sometimes you're going outside, you're walking, and you just stop in front of a plant, you know, and you fall in love with the plant. I used to, you ever look at a shaft of light going through a a window and there's a whole dance going on there? I used to spend a lot of time just, wow. And if somebody said, what are you doing? You say, oh, I'm watching dust. It doesn't sound very (laughs) exciting. But if you look carefully, it's all interesting, can be fascinating. So that's one level of non-delusion, to really see clearly and see vividly your experience. Another level of non-delusion is what's called um, not getting caught in the distortions of experience, taking what are called the vipalasas, where we take what's impermanent to be permanent. We don't see impermanence. Or we take what is a source of suffering, grasping, to be a source of happiness. Or we take this selfless experience, remember when I asked you to see yourself as a verb instead of a noun, take this selfless nature to be a solid self. And to really see through that distortion and to see impermanence, to see how grasping at changing experience is suffering and how we ourselves are this changing experience. And when you see that, 
You don't take ownership, take credit or blame for what's coming through. Have you seen, this happens all by itself. Did you program your day today? Well, I think I'm gonna wake up and I'll have this kind of sitting at the 8.45, and then I think I'll do this at the 11.15. No, it doesn't work that way. It's all really out of your control for the most part. Your end of the deal is coming back here and being here for the show. But to see that it's not up to you or these thoughts and all of these habits that you get caught in are just conditions, causes and conditions, is tremendously freeing. I had an experience many years ago Uh, that really showed this to me in one retreat. And I was, somehow I had fallen into this really delicious place in practice where I'd be sitting and it was uh, sitting for long hours and just clear and, um, and, and a lot of energy. I don't know how I got there, but there I was and just really enjoying it. And in one of these longer sittings, and I used to sit with my eyes open, somebody comes in in front of me who I really respected their practice. And they sit down and inside of about, oh, 10 minutes, there they are, nodding off, going down. And there I was kind of just cruising, clear and energetic for, for some time. And in one moment, it occurred to me the countless hours I had spent like this and that it could be me tomorrow and we could completely switch our roles. And in this one very profound moment, the whole room kind of spun around and instead of James and Laura and each person, we were just energy centers. And here was clarity, here was sleepiness, here was loving kindness, here was restlessness, here was calm, and it could all be changed. And to take credit for what I was going through was completely absurd. I had no idea how I got there. To let go of thinking it's up to you and to take credit when you have a really delicious experience or to blame yourself for when it gets a little bit hard, you're missing the point. It is simply life flowing through you and you can bring awareness to it. This is a tremendous understanding where you don't have to take ownership of your experience, that it is both yours and not yours. And I'll, I'll read a passage that maybe some of you are familiar with that points to this, that I love from uh, Martha Graham, the great choreographer, uh, saying to Agnes DeMille, another dancer, she says, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening, that is translated through you into action. And since there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. 
If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. So you can celebrate your uniqueness, but not take credit for it. Can you say, my unconditional love is better than your unconditional love? It doesn't make sense. My awareness, my pure awareness is better than yours or is not as good as yours. You're missing it. It's just awareness and love moving through you. And so this is really the deepest level of wisdom, of non-delusion. To see that you don't have to take ownership of your experience and at the same time celebrate it and cultivate all the beautiful qualities that you've been gifted with. This is uh, another Dana Falls poem about this. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward, just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. Every moment that you are mindful and don't identify or take ownership of your experience, you are cultivating this clarity, this non-delusion, this wisdom. So this is how we are transforming suffering into happiness in every moment of mindfulness. Not grasping at the pleasant, non-greed, letting go, generosity, non-hatred, non-aversion, friendliness, loving-kindness, and non-delusion, seeing clearly your true nature. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.